0: Listening to Understanding Christianity. I'm your host, Pastor Sean Cole. I'm the lead pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. I also serve as an adjunct professor at Colorado Christian University. Thank you for listening to our podcast today. Last week was a very interesting week in politics, and I normally don't talk about politics on the podcast. I do from time to time, but it was very telling an interaction between Senator Bernie Sanders and nominee from President Trump, Russell Vought. Uh, Russell Vought is an evangelical Christian. He appeared before the Senate Budget Committee to go through the nomination process. Uh, When it was Senator Bernie Sanders' turn to question Vought, um, it got very, very dicey. It was amazing how red and, and angry that Bernie Sanders got When he was questioning uh, Russell Vaught about his beliefs, about those who do not believe in Christ being condemned. And so let me just give you a transcript. I don't want to play it for you. I can just give you the words here real quick. But um, Bernie Sanders says, You think your statement that they do not know God because they rejected Jesus His Son and they stand condemned? Do you think that's respectful of other religions? He's talking about Muslims because uh, Russell Vaught was a graduate of Wheaton University and he had written an article for the Resurgent website, which is Eric Erickson's website, uh, talking about um, the relationship between that uh, statement of faith, that, that, that campus's statement of faith and how they interact with Muslims and Vaught Uh, Answers back, Senator, I wrote a post based on being a Christian and attending a Christian school that has a statement of faith that speaks clearly in regard to the centrality of Jesus in salvation. Bernie Sanders said back to him, I would simply say, Mr. Chairman, that this nominee is really not someone who this country is supposed to be about. You can go back on YouTube and type this in and watch it and see the exchange, but it was very scary It was very telling, it was prophetic in a sense of what I believe is going to be happening to us in America who truly stand up for conservative, evangelical, biblical Christianity. And obviously Bernie Sanders is ignorant of clear Christian doctrine um, if I would have been on the stand and not been under nomination and, and all the politics involved, I would have said, listen, uh, Senator Sanders, it's not just that Muslims who reject Christ are stand condemned. It's anybody who is in Adam, anybody who was born that has not placed personal faith and trust in Christ Jesus of, to save them of their sins and has repented and believed in Jesus. All of you stand condemned. So with, with due respect, um, Senator Sanders, you also stand condemned unless you repent and believe. And that is the message of Christianity. And so my wife and I began talking about this, and, and it just it bothered her so much. It concerned her so much to think about the way that Bernie Sanders treated uh, this evangelical Christian, Russell Vaught. And so in light of that, um, I, I debated how I would go about addressing this. And so I went back in the archives of, of some of the sermons that I've preached over the years. I've been at my church um, over 12 years now. But back um, in 2009, Um, I preached a sermon series expositionally through the book of 1 Peter. And as you know, 1 Peter deals a lot with the issue of persecution and suffering and how we as Christians are to handle that. Um, And so back in 2009, on September 13th, I preached this message uh, from 1 Peter chapter 4 on how we as believers in Jesus Christ need to be prepared for suffering. So I want to play that on this podcast for your edification. Um, It was preached many years ago, but I think the Scripture obviously is is absolutely true, but it's very timely in light of what just recently happened last week between Senator Bernie Sanders and his uh, vehement... basically just almost seething hatred of the Christian truth against this poor uh, man, Russell Vought, who was just basically standing up for evangelical biblical Christianity. So thank you for listening to the podcast today. Let's listen to the sermon I preached in September of 2009 from 1 Peter chapter 4. We'll listen to this in its entirety. And again, thank you for listening to Understanding Christianity. Now, you may say, well, I understand that we're supposed to suffer sometimes, and and I understand that there's going to be some things that happen in our life that's bad, and and I understand that there's going to be some hard times, but, but Sean, let me understand you correctly. You're saying that it's God's will that we suffer? That it's God's ordained plan that we suffer? And the answer from all through Scripture is yes. Yes. You don't hear that in today's church that much. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And if you sign up to be a Christian, you're going to be met with suffering. Do you want to become a Christian today? No, thank you. No, thank you. There's some Bible verses we just don't want to hear. 2 Timothy 3.12. I don't know how more plain Paul can be with 2 Timothy 3.12. He says, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Not might be persecuted, not may be persecuted. It's a statement of fact. If you want to live the way that God has called you to live, you will be persecuted. What about First John 3.13? John says, Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. That's a strong statement. Now stick your finger in 1 Peter chapter 4 and turn with me to John chapter 15 for just a moment. I want to I give you some words from Jesus, some strong words from our Lord and Savior, words that we have to come to grips with, words that relate to what Peter has before us in this passage of Scripture. John 15, 18-21. Let's just read this. The words of our Lord. Jesus says... If you, if they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. Jesus says the world hates us because the world hates him. And when we're connected to Jesus, we've been chosen out of the world. We're not of the world. And so Jesus says that we're strangers in a strange land. You're not part of this world. The world's going to hate you and he says no servant is greater than his master meaning if they insulted jesus if they mistreated jesus if they crucified jesus if they if they despise jesus we that are less than jesus should expect no less treatment if we're to follow in his footsteps we need to realize that we will suffer we will be hated and what does jesus say it's on account of my name it's because you bear the name christian now go down and look at verse 25 Jesus says, but the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. There's really no reason why they hate Jesus. They just hate him. They hate him without a cause. And sometime that's going to happen to us. We may not know why people treat us the way they do. It's maybe just the evil machinations of their hearts that they hate us. Well, thanks a lot, Sean. That's a great way to start out your message. These are great words of encouragement. The world hates me and I'm destined for persecution. Go home and be well fed. Go home and have a great day. This is exactly what I signed up for when I became a Christian, right? And sometimes when we have to stop and think about this, these are strong words. How many times did Jesus use the word hate? They will hate you. Is that really true? Does the world really hate us? I mean, we can, we can think about like enclosed countries like North Korea or the Sudan or China or, or Afghanistan or Iran and places like that. Well, sure, they hate Christians there. But here in America, do they really hate Christians? Here in America, these United States of America, are we hated? Well, have you ever watched TV? Have you done an Internet search lately? Do you read the newspaper? I did a Google search this week, and I, and I just typed in in Google why people hate Christians or hating Christians or anti-Christianity, and it came up with some pretty scary stuff. I don't recommend you do that. You'll be kind of grossed out. I went to YouTube. I thought, well, let's see what's on YouTube. I did the same thing, and it came up with some very vile, violent, and very um, graphic opinions that people have about Christians. Now what does Peter tell us? We are aliens. We are strangers in a strange land. We cannot escape this world. We're exiles, we're sojourners. We're just passing through. Our citizenship is in heaven. And if we're going to truly be different, the way God has called us to be different, it's going to result in hardships, in persecutions, in sufferings. It is God's will that that happens. That makes the blow a little bit harder to handle when it when when I say it's God's will. So the major question is this, not are you going to face persecution, are you going to face suffering, are you going to have hard times, that's not the question. The question is, how do I deal with it? How do I handle suffering, heartache, persecution? How do I handle this? What's my attitude surrounding it? What's my heart focused upon? And Peter gives us these hard words. He gives us five commands five primary commands this morning and they're all tied up in this whole issue of suffering suffering that word shows up all throughout 1 Peter suffering it's a letter to suffering Christians it's a letter to Christians that are struggling with the world pressing in upon them that doesn't like them and we may not be in America where we're experiencing the intense persecution that may be coming but there is some pressure that's coming upon us for naming the name of Christ and so let's read together 1 Peter four twelve through 19 He says, Beloved, some translations may use dear friends. He's starting a new section here. He's closing out his letter. It's a transitional statement. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful Creator while doing good. Five commands Peter gives to his beloved flock. What's the first command? Don't be surprised when trials come. Don't act as if something weird were happening to you. It's part of being a Christian. He says, don't be surprised at the fiery trial. Now, that's a great word, a fiery trial. Not just any type of trial, but a a fiery trial. And why does God bring fiery trials into our lives? Well, Peter tells us. The fiery trial, when it comes upon you, to test you. To test you. Now why as Christians will we have to go through a process of testing? Why can't the Christian life just be lollipop, lemonades, cotton candy, rainbows, butterflies? Why can't the Christian life just be easy? Why do we have to go through fiery trials? Why do we have to go through periods of testing? Well, Peter really already addressed that. Turn back to chapter 1. In chapter 1, Verse 7. Peter really already addressed this. He's he's addressed trials and suffering once already. We looked at this a few months ago. But in verse 7 he says, So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The purpose is a refining purpose. So that your faith is the real deal. So that you're not a fake. Now, here's the issue. Fiery trials are for the purpose of purification not for punishment we as god's people are not destined for punishment it's for purification it's so god can clean out the impurities in your life just like gold being melted down the dross comes to the top the impurities come to the top so that god can fashion a person a christian that looks more like jesus and so god is maybe orchestrating these fiery trials in your life to make you look more like his son, Jesus Christ. Peter uses an analogy here of these fiery trials. And, and many scholars think he's, he's hearkening back to Malachi. A few summers ago, I preached through Malachi. And I want to read to you Malachi 3, 1 through 3. Because it, it, there's this image of God coming as the refiner. He says, Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple... Remember that terminology. He will come to his temple. He comes to the house of God first. And the messenger of the covenant, in whom you delight, behold, he's coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap, He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. God himself will come like the refiner's fire. God will come with the fuller soap. It was like an alkaline. It was like um, some type of detergent. God's going to come and clean up His people. He's going to come to the house of God first. He's going to come to the leadership first. And God's going to do a major cleaning job on His people, a purification process. Now, many of you have maybe seen the movie uh, Pirates of the Caribbean, Master and Commander. Maybe you know about old sailing vessels, old sailing ships, these old sailing ships the decks would get dirty the decks would get muddy the decks would rot because of the 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 salt water and so what they would have to do is they'd have to clean the decks and the way they cleaned the decks was you couldn't use a mop really to get the dirt off and you couldn't use another piece of wood you had to piece use a piece of stone and they would kneel down and they would rub this stone over the decks and the stone came to be called a holy stone And the reason it was called a holy stone, because I guess it looked like you were praying as you were leaning down to clean the deck. And so you scour the deck with the holy stone to get the impurities off. That's the image here of God. God comes someone from outside of you to do a major cleaning job, to clean the impurities, to clean the unholiness out of our lives. And it could be painful, it could be rigorous, it could be uh, hard to, to deal with, but it's necessary so that the ship doesn't rot so that our lives don't rot. And so God is allowing these fiery trials to come into our lives for purification. In Malachi, God Himself was the fiery trial. God Himself was bringing the fire. In Peter, He just says there's fiery trials that come. Regardless of how you look at it, God is allowing it. God could maybe even be orchestrating it or ordaining it, but He's doing it for a purpose. He's doing it for purification, to test the genuineness of our faith. And the main point is he's saying, don't be surprised. Don't feel like you get a free pass from suffering just because you're a Christian. You're not immune to suffering. You're not immune to trials. There's maybe some things in yours and mine's life that need to be tested. There may be some impurities in yours and mine's life that need to be cleaned out. And God may be orchestrating these fiery trials to come to get you to the place that He wants you to be. It's His will. It's His purpose. And it's for your good. Now here's the second command, and it's even more startling. Don't be surprised when trials come. But look at look look at, look at the next thing. Verse 13. But rejoice in so far as you share Christ's suffering that you may also rejoice and be glad when the glory is revealed. I don't understand this. I'll just be the first to tell you. Peter says rejoice, be glad, be excited, be happy when these trials come. That's a hard saying. Paul says the same thing. Romans chapter 5, 3 through 5, he says, More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings. Why? Knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. So Paul says, Rejoice in your trials. What about James? James says the same thing. James chapter 1, 2 through 4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Be joyful when trials come. And in verse 13 it says, You share in Christ's sufferings. That doesn't mean that we are going to experience to the extent everything that Christ experienced, especially the death on the cross bearing God's wrath. But the insults, the hardships, uh, the, the, the mischaracterizations, the betrayals, the backstabbing, the jealousy, all the things that happened to Jesus, we should expect to happen to us because we share in his sufferings and we're not to be surprised if these things happen and we're to rejoice when these things are happening but notice what it says but you may also rejoice not in the here and now but when his glory is revealed there is a great hope in first peter and it's all centered on the glory to be revealed there's going to come a day when jesus christ will come back and he's going to right the wrongs he's going to vindicate his people And there's a great promise in Revelation chapter 21, verse 4. A great promise. Not here and now. This is a future promise for the age to come. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. You see, we're still in that age. We're in the age of crying and mourning and weeping. But there's a future day coming. So let me just give you a little bit of warning this morning. Be very wary, be very cautious of any religious leader or preacher or teacher that comes along and promises glory now and eliminates suffering. If somebody comes along and says that Christians aren't supposed to suffer, that we're supposed to experience the glory now, be very leery of that person because they have not read the scriptures. Yes, we're experiencing a a measure of glory now, but we are destined to suffer persecution, to suffer pain, to suffer all these things, and then comes the glory. What did Jesus have to suffer first? Crucifixion and then resurrection. So be wary of anybody that comes and says, we're to experience glory now and not have any pain or suffering. What did Jesus say? Rejoice and be glad. Jesus said, be rejoiced and be glad. Peter says, rejoice and be glad. When did Jesus say it? Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 11-12. Same exact words of Peter. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. We are looking forward to that future reward. There's a motivation. A lot of times in church, we don't talk about rewards, we don't talk about future glory. But sometimes the motivation just to keep going in the Christian life is that Christ is going to come back and and it's going to be payday. God doesn't pay every day, but God will pay one day. And those that have reviled and those that have mistreated His people will be taken care of on that day. Now, we have actually an explanatory statement in verse 14. He says, if you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Now, what's the source of these fiery trials? We get a clue from the word that Peter uses there, probably in relation to his original audience. He says, if you are insulted, if you're insulted. Now, at that time, Nero had not started burning Christians at the stake. There wasn't this mass persecution physically against Christians. At this point, it was more verbal. It was verbal insults. They were suffering the verbal insults of being a Christian, the name-calling, the mischaracterizations, the gossip, the slander, the spreading of lies, the verbal abuse that comes from being a Christian. And there's an interesting proverb I came across this week. Proverbs 29, 27 is a very interesting proverb. One whose way is straight is an abomination to the wicked. If you're living the right way, the wicked are going to hate you. You're going to be an abomination to them. And I think that's where we are in America right now. We're not at the point where we're being arrested for our faith. We're not being beaten and clubbed and thrown into jail and having our heads chopped off for being a Christian. We're starting to see the beginnings of the verbal abuse against Christians. The insults. We're lampooned in the media. We're made fun of. We are are mischaracterized. Christians are getting a bad name. We're being insulted for the name of Christ. And Paul, I mean, Peter here says, you're blessed when that happens. When you're insulted, count it a blessing. Now, not that we're sadistic and we want this stuff to come upon us, but think about it. Why are we being insulted? What does Peter say? It's on account of the name of Christ. Now, if we were very generic and just talked about God, it wouldn't be a problem in America. Everybody talks about God generic. The moment you start saying Jesus Christ, the moment you start saying He's the only way of salvation, the moment you start saying He's the resurrected Christ and Lord, then it's where you start stepping out of the bounds of what culture seems acceptable and people begin to start persecuting you. You see, Islam believes in God. They call God Allah, but they use the word God. You talk to, a, to an Islamic person, they believe in God. A Buddhist believes in God. A Hindu believes in God. A lot of people believe in generic God, but not everybody believes in the risen Christ. And so when you start talking about Jesus Christ, not the Jesus portrayed in the movies, the the wimpy little guy walking around with the pithy sayings, but the real Jesus Christ, the one that makes demands on people's lives, the one that says repent and believe the gospel, the one that's coming back on a white horse to bring about justice, that Jesus that people have to deal with, the only Jesus, the living Christ, then people start getting all upset. And Peter says you're blessed when you're insulted for being a Christian. Why are you blessed? Why would that be a blessing? Well, he answers the question for us. Little words in the Greek make sense. It's in your English. Let none of you, are, If you are salted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because, because gives us the reason why the Spirit of glory rests upon you. Now, what does this mean? The Spirit of glory rests upon you. This word rest means to give refreshment, to give relief, to give grace. So who gives us the refreshing grace in the midst of the insults? The Spirit. The Spirit of glory. None other than the Holy Spirit. God has given us the wonderful Holy Spirit to live within us, to be a source of power, a source of grace, a source of refreshing. The Holy Spirit is proof that God has not abandoned you. The Holy Spirit has been given to us so that when these attacks come, when these insults come, when these hardships come, when these trials come, we have power through the Holy Spirit. We have a helper. What did Jesus tell us about the Holy Spirit? In John 14, 16-18, He says, I will ask the Father and He will give you another helper to be with you forever. Never to leave you, to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you. He will be within you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. So Jesus has sent to us the Holy Spirit to live in us, to indwell us, to give us the power, to give us the grace. It says here that the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Rests upon you. What's Peter's main thesis? Back in chapter 1, verse 2, it says, in the sanctification of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one that's causing us to be growing in Christ. Now, what's the third command? The third command's negative, and it's real simple. If you're going to suffer, make sure it's not for suffering for evil behavior. Don't suffer for being a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or, or a meddler. You know, you're going to suffer the consequences if you do bad things and just expect it. If you murder, there's consequences. If you, if you lie, there's consequences. If you steal, there's consequences. Don't be the kind of Christian that suffers the way that evil people suffer when they do things that are wrong. You're blessed if you're suffered, suffering for Christ. You're, you're blessed if you're persecuted for the name of Christ, but not for doing the things that, that lost people do. Now, here's the fourth command. We find it in verse 16. If anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. Don't be ashamed for being a Christian. Now, here's an interesting statement. We need to talk about the word Christian for just a moment, okay? Probably the most misused, or probably the most abused, misused word in our culture Christian. Everybody's a Christian. Some people think they're Christian by virtue of being born in America. When you get a form to fill out or survey, you, you mark the box Christian. Everybody is a Christian. You know that the word Christian only shows up three times in the Bible? The early Christians were not rarely called Christians. In Acts eleven twenty six, 26, in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Usually, they were called those that followed the way. Those that were believers, brothers and sisters, those, there were a bunch of different names, but, but the word Christian was not that common. What does the word Christian mean? Literally, it means little Christ. Little Christ. So if you're going to be a little Christ, it means you live the way Jesus lived. You follow Jesus. You love Jesus. You obey Jesus. Jesus is your all in all. He is your very sustenance. He is your life. You see, we've, we've, we've abused this word Christian. Everybody's a Christian, right? Peter says, if you suffer for being a Christian... Now, in, in our culture today, you don't suffer much when you say you're a Christian because everybody's a Christian. That's not what causes you to suffer. What causes you to suffer as a Christian is when you start living like a Christian should live and when you start believing the way a Christian should live because that goes in stark contrast with the world. That's what marks you out. And Peter says, don't be ashamed. Don't be ashamed to bear the badge of Christ. And not only don't be ashamed, but what else does he say? Glorify. Let him glorify God in that name. Give glory to God that you bear the name Christian, the real meaning of the word Christian. What did Jesus say about those that were ashamed of his name? In Mark chapter 8.38, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. That's a scary thought. To have Jesus be ashamed of you because you were ashamed of him. I think that's talking about non-believers. There are a lot of people that claim the word Christian that aren't believers. They've never been born again. What did Paul tell Timothy in Second Timothy eight? Therefore, do not be ashamed about the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in the suffering of the gospel by the power of God. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. The early church, James and John, they were persecuted. They suffered for the name of Christ. And there's a little, little information in Acts 5.41 that tells us how they responded when they were beaten. How would you respond if you were beaten for the name of Christ? Acts 5.41 They left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. They counted it an honor to suffer dishonor for standing up for the name of Christ. Now, in verses 17 and 18 we find a summary statement. Kind of an interesting little interlude here. And it says that it's time for judgment to begin at the household of God. Now, we need to be real careful here because that word judgment can give us some problems if we're not careful. Peter is not saying that somehow we as God's people are going to be under his wrath, that somehow it's punitive justice, somehow that we're going to be judged. That's not what he's saying. The word judgment there in that passage means purification. God's going to come like he did in Malachi. What did he do in Malachi? He came to where? The temple. It's no surprise that Peter, the literal translation there, is household of God. What was the household of God in the Old Testament? It was the temple. In the New Testament, what are Christians called? We are called the temple. In Peter, he's already used this analogy that we are living stones being built into a spiritual house. He's saying that God's going to come to His people first and purify them. We're not immune from this purification process. We will undergo the purification. But then he has a comparison He says, if God comes to us who are his people, if God does a purification process and allows suffering to come upon his people, what's the outcome of those who aren't Christians? And basically, he he quotes Proverbs 11.31 and says, if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and sinner? Now, that word scarcely is probably not the best translation. It makes it almost sound like uh, you, you barely get saved by the skin of your neck. It's like your whole life you're at the edge of hell and at the very last minute, God pulls you back. That's not what that word means. It doesn't mean that we as Christians are barely saved. That word scarcely literally translates with difficulty. Yes, we're saved by grace, but it means that in our lives, we must go through some difficult things before we reach our final destination. So we are saved and it's, it's, there's some experiences that we're going to undergo to be purified. And, and, and Peter's basically saying, if you're a non-believer, if you're lost, if you do not obey the gospel of God, you may not experience suffering right now. Things may be good now, but there is eternal suffering coming. The outcome is going to be a whole lot worse for you. It's going, to be, it's going to be eternal hell. So in light of all this, Peter gives one final command in verse 19. You know it's the final command because he sums it up with the therefore. Therefore. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. We must keep entrusting ourselves to God. Notice what he says here: "According to God's will. It's according to God's will that we suffer. We saw it back in chapter three, verse 17. What does he say in verse 3:17, uh, for "It's better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. It is God's will that we suffer. Now, this word is a very rich word, in trust. It's in the present tense in the original language, it means to keep on entrusting yourselves to God. It's a banking term. It means to put your money on reserve, to put your money in safekeeping. Now, in our culture, we know that that's not very safe, right? Put your money in, in stock portfolios and 401ks, and it's kind of shaky right now. Not so with God. You put your life in God's safekeeping. Why? What's the definition of God? How is God described here? He's described as our faithful creator. What I find interesting is this is the only time in the New Testament God is referred to as creator. Now, it's alluded to, but the word creator. What does that tell us about God? If He's our faithful creator, what does that tell us about God? He's sovereign. He's in control. Nothing goes past His His glance. Nothing's outside His purview. He's in charge of all things. Nothing happens of which He doesn't know. He's intricately involved in your life. He cares about you. He loves you. He knows how many hairs are upon your head. God loves you. God cares about you. God is intimately involved with you. He created you. He's sovereign. He's faithful. And because that's who God is, we can keep in trust trusting ourselves to him we can keep entrusting ourselves to him the same way jesus did back in chapter 223 that same greek word jesus, jesus kept entrusting himself to him who judges justly on the cross jesus kept entrusting himself and then peter has a very interesting little last statement there while doing good hasn't that been his theme all throughout first peter doing good When you suffer, make sure you keep on doing good. Now, it's easy to do good when things are going well, right? When the culture is not that hostile against you. When forces aren't coming against you, it's easy to do good. But when you start doing the things that get you in trouble with the culture, the things that Christians are supposed to do, that's the last thing you want to do because doing good is going to bring the fiery trials. And Peter reminds us once again, as you suffer, don't backslide. Don't get lax. Continue to do good. Good. Don't go with the flow. Now, I got to the end of this message, and I thought, man, this is a discouraging message. It is God's will that we all suffer. The world's going to hate you. You're going to go through some fiery trials. How do you end a message like this? I want to balance what Peter gives all throughout his book. Go back and look at how many times he uses the word hope. Let's go back and look at how he starts his book. Chapter 1, verse 3. He, he, he lays this foundation, and we've got to keep going back to this foundation. First and foremost, we're elect exiles. We are chosen according to God's sovereign grace. We are His by sovereign election. God has chosen us. But look at some of these things that God has done for us in the midst of suffering. Verse 3 of chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, we're blessed why according to his great mercy okay so we're recipients of mercy we could be recipients of god's wrath we could be recipients of god's justice but as as those who he's called out we are recipients of his great mercy and what else has god done he's caused us to be born again and what to to a living hope through the resurrection of jesus christ from the dead and what do we have waiting for us an inheritance we have heaven. We have an inheritance on permanent reserve that's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. And what's God doing right now? Verse 5, Who by God's power are being guarded, being preserved, being shielded, being loved through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Verse 6, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. So Peter wants to remind us that because of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and who we are in Christ, there is victory. may not be right now, but there's a day of victory. And God's going to ensure that He's with us every step of the way through these trials. Now, worship is a response to truth. Worship comes in many forms. Worship comes in hearing. Worship comes in reading. Worship comes in singing. Worship comes in giving. But sometimes I think there needs to be a response at the end of a message like this. and So I'm going to ask us to respond in just a few moments by singing an anthem back to the Lord. And as we sing this song back to the Lord, it's going to be an act of worship where we are reminded of God's faithfulness. We are reminded of God's provision. We are reminded of God's being our faithful creator. And you may be here this morning going through a fiery trial. You may be here this morning going through some hard times and you may be here this morning and the last thing you want to hear out of Pastor Sean's mouth is it's God's will for you to go through this. But you need to hear on the other, on the other hand that God is with you, that God is faithful. Let me close with two passages of Scripture to encourage you and then we're going to respond and worship and reflect upon God's provision. Romans eight we're very familiar but in context, let's read a few passages here together. Romans eight twenty eight, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are accord, called according to His purpose. Do you believe that? Not just some things. All things work together for good. Verse 29. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? What are these things? God's sovereign grace in the life of his people. What do we say to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Can you say this morning, if God is for me, who can be against me? They may come at me at all angles. They may come at me with fiery darts. They may come at me spewing profanities out of their mouth. They may come and surround us like an army, but God is on our side. If God is for us, who can be against us? And then in John 10, the words of Jesus, even greater encouragement. John 10, 27, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them and they follow me. I give, Listen to the sovereignty of Jesus here. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. If you're a believer here this morning, you are safe in a double grip. You're in Jesus' hand, and you're in the Father's hand, and no one can snatch you out of those hands. If God is for us, who can be against us, even if you're in the midst of the worst kind of trial, a fiery trial?